0: My name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the dark heart of Trussonomics, an exploration of the ideas circulating among some senior conservatives, including Prime Minister Liz Truss, brilliantly exposed at Byline Times by Nafiz Ahmed. Nafiz identifies how people who believe in the idea of eugenics, that some groups of people are genetically more intelligent and capable than others, have been allowed a platform within the Tory mainstream. Though we should be clear we aren't suggesting that Truss herself or any of her ministers believes in or promotes eugenics. Some of the government's policies do carry echoes of that ideology. We'll be chatting to Nafiz shortly. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to The Byline Times, our must-read monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content in print that you can't access online. And I know that the latest edition has just gone to print, so getting quickly, and you might be able to get hold of that as well. We can report without fear or favour, because there's no billionaire or shadowy corporation telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you so if you can please subscribe to the byline times you get more details over at bylinetimes.com that's at bylinetimes.com if you head over to bylinetimes.com you will see as well this fascinating article by Nafiz, who joins us now hi Nafiz, you're right
1: hi Adrian I'm good thank you
0: good good now to start then let's look at the key figure in what you describe as the dark art of trustonomics. This is a writer called Charles Murray. Tell us a little bit about him.
1: So Charles Murray is really well known on the conservative circuit in the United States. And is surprisingly and increasingly mainstream in right-wing circles, despite the fact that he has basically been kind of the main pioneer of popularising scientific racism. So he was identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center, a very well-known civil rights law firm in the United States. They track extremism and they identify extremist groups. And they basically identified him as a white nationalist extremist for his involvement in kind of academically putting forward these kind of ideas and trying to make them out to be mainstream science. So he famously published a book in 1994 called The Bell Curve, where he quite explicitly set out his views that essentially black people and other minorities, but black people, Latinos, also women, are basically stupider than white people and white men. And for both a combination of genetic and environmental reasons, they will never be able to ever, on average, reach the same level of intelligence and cognitive capability as their white counterparts, and that gap is going to get wider and wider and wider. So he basically talks about this idea of cognitive stratification, this idea that society is tending towards this cognitive stratification, and there's nothing we can do about it. So as a result, essentially what he's saying is that the kind of widening inequalities that we're seeing in society are a function of a kind of inevitable process, which we can expect and really what we should do is, rather than trying to have welfare programs which are trying to stop this, he says this is futile, there's no point trying to have programs for the poor and the vulnerable, who are disproportionately ethnic backgrounds and disproportionately women. Really what we need to do is can kind of control and manage that inevitable situation and do things to minimize the impact of this kind of growing underclass On society so you can imagine what then follows from that you know if if you've identified an underclass who are self-perpetuating and and are cognitively inferior then you're going to think that the best way to advance society is essentially to promote the the kind of the privilege networks of largely white men because those are kind of these self-selecting groups that are kind of actually deserving of their position that they're in and have higher cognitive abilities and that's why they're in the positions of power. So that perpetuates this idea, essentially naturalizes these widening inequalities. And then it advocates things like, really, we need to minimize the birth rates of these populations, so minimize immigration of foreign populations into these kind of societies, because they're going to bring their inferior cognitive capabilities with them. And we don't want that. So you can see how this discourse perpetuates a lot of the Traditional extreme side of conservatism, and then necessarily all of conservatism, but it's becoming more mainstream. This idea that we need to kind of manage and separate out, you know, this underclass, and if we don't do that, there's going to be a crisis that emerges.
0: Yeah, and in terms of Liz Truss's and quasi Kwarteng's economic policies and the recent mini budget, it was notable that there were supporters of the idea that inequality is back that rewarding the biggest earners with big tax cuts whilst giving smaller tax cuts to smaller earners was the way that things should be that inequality is okay now of course it would be absurd to think of quasi kwateng supporting the idea of eugenics and liz truss does not overtly support the idea of eugenics so it's it's more nuanced than saying that these people have adopted Charles Murray's policies as Conservative Party policies. But that notion that inequality is somehow baked in to the way we are seems to be part of, of how they see the world.
1: I think what's interesting is, first of all, if you look at the book Britannia Unchained, authored by uh, Truss and Qua and, and several others, you can actually get a glimpse of the economic ideology that they are implementing now, where they're essentially taking a wrecking ball to even many of the traditional kind of market economics approaches. We're seeing there's a huge conflict between what was proposed in the mini-budget and the way the city and the market are seeing things. Like they're saying that these things don't add up. There was actually a fantastic review of Britannia Unchained in Byline Times by uh, Sam Bright, You know, read the whole thing from cover to cover and has really highlighted some of those ideas. You know, some of them are quite famous now, the idea that British workers are idlers, as laziness is endemic amongst the working class. Again, the idea that these structures of inequality are to be expected. And we've seen this reflected in the mini-budget to the extent that the focus overwhelmingly has been on not trying to lift all boats. I mean, this idea of having economic growth, and then it trickles down. I think what's really struck me about the mini budget, where were the avenues of even trickling down? I mean, even that was kind of just ditched. And it was just, well, let's essentially do various things to throw money at the richest class of people in Britain. And there wasn't really any thinking about trickling down at all. There wasn't any thinking about what are we going to do about the fact that so many ordinary people are going to be so devastatingly impacted by the convergence of crises that we're seeing in in kind of energy and cost of living and food and all the rest of it, but nothing, you know, no plan to kind of lift benefits, for instance, in line with inflation, no plan to agree that wages should be lifted in line with inflation, just no interest in that at all. And it was being struck by that, that, because I'd been reporting on Charles Murray and the influence of his work before, and it did make me wonder whether there was a connection So, I I was actually surprised to discover how close the connection was and how deeply Charles Murray has actually impacted conservative thinking on both sides of the Atlantic. And here we're
0: talking about a book that was published in 1994, which was hugely controversial in the United States, received a fair degree of coverage in the UK as well. And you've identified that Charles Murray has been welcomed with open arms by think tanks like the Institute of Economic Affairs and other prominent conservative think tank Civitas and has been given a platform on many occasions by these organisations and indeed by Rupert Murdoch's Times and Sunday Times as well. So it's not as though Murray has been pushed to the sidelines or ignored in the UK. He has been given succour by organisations with which Liz Truss and other senior cabinet ministers are closely associated.
1: That's absolutely right, and I was quite shocked to discover. And I think certainly some people knew this, but I was shocked to discover that Charles Murray had been welcomed into the highest echelons of the Conservative Party. I mean, in 1987, this kind of flirtation began, and I think in the Sunday Times under Rupert Murdoch, I and mean, Rupert Murdoch is a big fan of Charles Murray, and has. He doesn't always put out the books that he likes, but he's several times recommended Charles Murray's work, he recommended one of his books on Twitter and you know other times. But in the late 80s, the Sunday Times began taking a big interest in Charles Murray. Obviously, this was before he wrote The Bell Curve, which was kind of his seminal contribution specifically to race science. But even back in the 80s, you know, he was writing about the underclass, he'd written a book called Losing Ground. And the whole book was really focusing very much on the idea that there was a predominantly Black underclass and that he really wanted to try and make this case that the negative experiences of the Black communities in the United States were nothing to do with Black history. And at that time, he didn't specifically articulate his views about cognitive stratification. But obviously, a few years later, in 1994, he cemented that view. And, and you know, one has to realize that this ideology For Charles Murray, is an interconnected one where he slowly over time revealed the deeper thinking and the kind of essentially the eugenics origins of his views. And I should add, while I'm on that subject, that his book, The Bell Curve, heavily cited research that was funded by the Pioneer Fund, which is a Nazi eugenics foundation. It was set up in the 1930s, and one of the things that they did actively was to try and promote the so-called repatriation of Black people back to Africa, supposedly. And also, they wanted to stop Jewish refugees from coming to the United States, all because, of course, they said they have inferior cognitive abilities. So that was the research he was citing. So it was a shock when I discovered that the Sunday Times had actually paid Charles Murray to come to the UK in the late 80s. And he had extraordinary access just before Margaret Thatcher was voted out he had been meeting with senior officials in her government, you know, the policy planning unit. I don't remember the exact names of all the departments. Some of them has changed, obviously, over time. but I think also the Department of Health and Social Care. And he also met Margaret Thatcher in person as well. Absolutely extraordinary that someone like this would be able to meet senior Tory officials in that way. And since then... Through the 1990s, he continued to have this very close relationship with the Institute of Economic Affairs and with Civitas. Now, at that time, Civitas didn't exist. And in the 90s, it was a unit within the Institute of Economic Affairs run by David Green. But the IEA at that time was publishing pamphlets by him. It published various other booklets. It hosted him several times. And they continued this relationship long after he published The Bell Curve in 1994, and continue to quote him continue to cite him as the latest interview with charles murray by the iea is in 2014 i believe if i remember the exact day but just a few years ago when they were interviewing him about the problem of democracy and that democracy is not going to offer a solution to deal with issues around regulations I'm mean, going essentially calling for rampant deregulation and, and basically saying that in order to have the changes that we need we need to have people kind of rising up against the democratic system in some way. It was an extraordinary precursor for the type of militancy that we've seen since the 6th of January riots in Capitol Hill after Biden came to power.
0: It is worth noting here, I think, and important to state, Nafis, that the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, said the IEA disagrees with racists, white nationalism and eugenics, They said the IEA's mission is improving understanding of the institutions of a free society and the role of free markets in solving economic and social problems. We do not then recognise your attempt to link it to things that we have not published or supported, let alone third party interpretations of what they mean. So they are seeking very firmly there to distance themselves from Charles Murray.
1: Which is interesting in the sense that they've distanced themselves from what they've described, but they haven't distanced themselves from Charles Murray. And I actually gave them the opportunity to do that many times. And I specifically said to them that, do you agree that Charles Murray is a white nationalist and that his ideas are rooted in eugenics? And they just would not comment on that. They did, They And that's essentially what they said to me. So they said, yeah, we disagree with white nationalism. But they didn't say that they agree that Charles Murray himself is a white nationalist, an extremist whose ideas are racism and eugenics. Well, you can't have it both ways. I mean, if you really disagree with white nationalism and you disagree with eugenics, you particularly all that stuff, why are you platforming a person who has these views and then you're not even wanting to admit that he has those views and that his work is around all of that stuff? So it's quite a strange and interesting position to take. And the link here to Liz Truss is that Liz Truss created
0: the Free Enterprise Group of Conservative MPs, and they too have been very closely linked with the Institute of Economic Affairs. They have been given numerous platforms by the IEA, and I think you described them as the political wing of the IEA, and it's that grouping within the Conservative Party that is now in power in Downing Street.
1: That's right. I mean I think we identified eight cabinet members who have these links to the IEA through the Free Enterprise group. And I think this is what the piece is really about. It's not trying to suggest that any of these cabinet members necessarily are familiar with Charles Murray's work, you know, and believe his specific ideas. It's really about how Charles Murray and and, and maybe lobbies around him or whatever have quite successfully, pushed his ideas into the mainstream and he's been very clever and quite careful about how he has articulated his views. So it was often when he talks about the underclass, he won't necessarily at the same time talk about his ideas about race and gender and inequalities or cognitive capability and all this kind of stuff in genetics. He won't necessarily talk about himself at the same time. And even more so, we've seen that when groups like the IEA have promoted him, they haven't referred necessarily to those ideas. So there is quite an interesting process of carefully excising from the citations of his work, the acknowledgement that, oh, he's a white nationalist extremist whose ideas are in eugenics. It's just been removed. You know, his ideological and scientific theoretical backdrop of everything he says is removed from the picture And so what you have left is just these ideas about the underclass and the policy prescriptions. But the fact that those policy prescriptions are rooted in all of that is taken away. Whether that's happened by accident or deliberately is really besides the point. What I tried to do in the piece is explore whether and how that has happened. And what we can see is that as a result of this process of ideological transmission, these key ideas that he set forth have become a mainstay Of conservative thinking in the UK as well as in the United States but in the UK which is quite shocking so these ideas have become quite entrenched now we see them repeated by senior politicians across the board you know people like Boris Johnson people like Michael Gove even though they have very differing political views and they fight a lot with each other but they seem to have this consensus around this idea of this growing underclass and how we need to deal with them, this idea that there's a form of social apartheid. And it's interesting that there is this gravitation towards, well, we can't allow foreigners and we can't allow immigrants and we have to minimise the birth rates of these populations. And it explains quite a lot then. It explains why it's been so easy with these ideas having become entrenched. And so many of our politicians and people in these networks not necessarily knowing even where these ideas have come from, but kind of accepting them. And believing them, the party, not just the conservative party, but the conservative movement in the UK has become susceptible to radicalization. And, you know, people have done polling of the different views that Tory voters hold. And many of them are quite strange. You know, people believing things like there are Muslim no, so, sorry, non-Muslim no-go zones where, you know, non-Muslims can't go because they're dominated by Muslims. Or other ideas like which are similar to the far-right Great Replacement Theory, this idea which has inspired many of the recent white supremacist attacks, for instance, in Christchurch, New Zealand, and so on and so forth, that this idea that there are this huge influx of immigration from foreign places, largely kind of Africa and and Muslim places, which is replacing indigenous white populations in Europe, and then therefore kind of posing this mortal civilizational threat. Again, the fact that this idea, polling has shown, has become more and more mainstream, inside conservative circles that many people actually believe it. You know, ordinary people who probably wouldn't harm a fly, but are going around carrying these ideas and, and segments of them. And I think understanding the role that Charles Murray has played at this high level and the way in which some of these Tufton Street groups, you know, very powerful lobbies, have a very kind of influential role in the thinking of the Conservative Party, that they have built on his views really is quite disturbing and raises a lot of questions about the direction of the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement in general and why it's been unable to really kind of, you know, do the graft of kind of rethinking its economic orthodoxy to kind of have a different approach that could actually work. Instead, we see this kind of addiction to these very stale ideas, which we're seeing time and again are just not working.
0: And Mark Littlewood, who's the Director General of the Institute for Economic Affairs, has previously told Byline Times that he does not believe in the idea of racial differences in IQ or a biological basis for race, and he believes that racism should be called out. What I think you've identified that's really interesting, as you say, Nafiz, is that even if Conservatives are unaware of the underlying philosophy of Charles Murray, They've reached the same point ideologically when we talk about the prescription for the UK's ills. I think it's just worth finishing with the thought that the supposed scientific basis for Charles Murray's bell curve has been significantly undermined. The idea of eugenics, of inbuilt supremacy or inferiority is abhorrent I think in its own right but even the scientific or alleged scientific underpinning of it has come
1: into disrepute. It's interesting because I think what we're seeing with Charles Murray the work that he cites to support his views was very old research that went back to as I said a very specific kind of lobby in the United States that had these very real links to Nazi scientists at the time when crimes were being committed. So that's the first thing. And, and since then, that research was heavily discredited by the scientific community. And for quite a long time, biologists and geneticists had kind of moved on from those ideas. And I think by the 90s, you, know, you still had a small cohort of people. And you know, there is still a small cohort of people who believe this stuff but they're becoming smaller and smaller as time goes on. But what's very clear is that when Charles Murray wrote his book, there was still, I think, a bit more of a kind of a chance as far as the scientific may, you know Maybe we'll find out that genetics is responsible for all of these different things, and we're going to prove that how genetics determines all this, and then we'll solve all our problems and blah, blah, blah. But since then, even more so, you know, since the 90s, these ideas have been increasingly shown to just not add up. I've quoted several studies in the piece. Some some of them are meta-analyses, which are studies of studies. They look at the whole literature. Some of them are a bit more focused and looking at some of the latest developments. But all of them are in very prestigious journals and by very well-known neuroscientists, biologists, geneticists. And essentially what they're saying is that even if there are some correlations between genetics and certain capabilities, the problem is is that a lot of those correlations can still be shown to have potentially environmental causes. We don't have any solid data which shows that it's only genetic or it's only environmental. That blurring of the boundaries hasn't really been resolved despite decades and decades and decades of research So while there is still an ongoing debate and there's still lots of room for progress and more understanding of this stuff, more or less, I think that there's an emerging scientific consensus that this is essentially a dead end, we're not really going to be able to show that this particular gene or that is necessarily going to enhance this particular level of IQ. And all the efforts to do that has literally been a waste of billions of dollars, it's just not gone anywhere.
0: Nafis, great to speak to you. Really fascinating stuff. And there's loads more. I would encourage people to head over to bylinetimes.com and read your article in full. We've only sort of scratched the surface of this story it's big it's deep and it's hugely important so thanks very much indeed to nafiz and just another example of why if you can you should really be supporting the byline times great journalism great insight if you can take out a subscription head over now to bylinetimes.com sub start from as little as three pounds a month and you're helping brilliant journalists like nafiz and hopefully if you like this podcast you're helping this podcast as well to stay on the air so head over take out a subscription at bylinetimes.com i'm adrian goldberg this has been the byline times podcast we'll see you again soon cheers now bye bye